Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Welcome to Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, bringing the shapers of the business world together with the musicians shaping jazz, soul and blues. My guest today is James Gordon, founder of Digico and the CEO of Audiotonics, creators of digital mixing consoles for live sound, theatre and broadcast. James's love affair with music was sparked by his father's involvement in the music recording industry. After learning the ropes as a studio engineer and then working sales for an audio console company, James became managing director for digital live console pioneers Digico. The success and growth of Digico led to a merger in 2014 with two pro audio businesses and the formation of Audiotonics. The group's expansion continues with James setting the blueprint for a unique technology-focused operation within the live entertainment and audio creation sectors. The music industry is full of fun, but it's also got, obviously, the back end of it. If the music doesn't work when you're at a live event, you're in trouble. Tell me a little bit about that pleasure that you still get when you go to a gig and you hear it all working especially one of your own yeah i think there's there's nothing is there i mean like it when when you're in a venue and the the lights dim down and there's that sort of hush in the audience and then you hear the first beat of the kick drum through a proper large pa system in a big room and you just feel the energy from it and you know it's going to be a good night and then, you know, those are, the, those are the nights that that make up all our memories, aren't they? They're the things that attach us to girlfriends or, or relationships or whatever that we've had over the years. Memories, good and bad. And I just think that's the power of music. And live events brings that to a, a new level when you share it with others. Now, people may not have heard of your business, but they'll definitely, I'm imagining, pretty likely to have been at an event. Give me a sense of the kind of events that that you've supported over the last few years. Yeah, sure. So Audiotonics is really just the parent company. So it's the it's the holding company, if you like, for the brands that sit underneath it. And as you mentioned, we have brands in in just about every sector of, of audio. So if you're you're into listening to music at home, you will definitely have heard songs that have been mixed through solid state logic mixing consoles. By far the market leader for for music creation and music studios. Flip that the other way, we have a company called Calrec that does TV sports and news. So if you like watching the Premier League, that's predominantly mixed through a Calrec product. So you will definitely have heard of Calrec. If you like going to West End shows or you like going to big concerts, that's where you'll come in contact with brands like Digico, who do all the major live events, opening ceremonies, things like the Olympics were started with Digico consoles producing all of the audio. And then as you walk around town, you might walk into bars and restaurants or shops and you'll hear Alan Heath. And Alan and Heath is by far the sort of the main stable for for smaller events, whether it's a a pub band or whether it's a small nightclub, you'll hear Alan and Heath products in there. And then we have a new company in the group started, actually we acquired it over COVID, which was an interesting challenge. But we've got sound devices and sound devices make products for capturing audio on film sets and TV sets. So if you like Bridgerton or you like watching Top Gear, you will have heard Sound Devices products. So really, there isn't a day that goes by where your listeners won't hear a piece of audio that has gone through one of our brand's products. What a buzz for you. That's pretty cool. Not bad, eh? That's not like going to work. Well, I was going to say, but work for you, it started as an engineer, is that right? Yes, that's right. I mean, really, 
When I was a, a young boy, I was lucky that my father worked for EMI. So I got to get dragged around music studios when I was, you know, on school holidays or whatever. And, and for me, amazingly, it wasn't about the artist being recorded. It was walking into that control room and seeing the big mixing console with all the faders and the lights. And in those days, you used to have two-inch tape machines, which had massive great reels on them that would spin forwards and backwards. And that just ignited something in me, and I wanted to work in the industry. And I can remember, I mean, this, this is something about how we work as Audiotonics, but also a personal thing for me. I went to my careers officer, and, and at the time, I said, yeah, I want to get in the music industry. I want to work in a studio. And her reaction to that was, well, that's not really a proper career, is it? And uh, unfortunately, I think that's still the case today. I think, you know, one of the reasons why I personally and Audiotonics put so much effort into our STEM project for kids at schools is to try and educate schools that actually our industry is huge and there's lots of jobs. You know, there's, there's maybe one person stuck behind the microphone like, like I am today with you, but there are hundreds of people behind the scenes that make us hopefully look and sound as good as we do. And those hundreds of people are, are doing really creative and special jobs, and we need more of them across the whole industry. So that's the bit, I think, that for me, I'd like kids to go into their careers office and be encouraged to get into our space. You mentioned briefly, we did a quick survey of the, all the different brands that yes. are involved in or some, all the of them. Or some of them. Your role in that now, having been the guy who was buzzed by the sound, you're still the guy that's buzzed by the sound. And I wondered where the technology that's required, and, and, and I've read a little bit about the research and development thinking that goes into your business, the technology that goes in there, the love of music, and you being a guy in business. I mean, you've, you know, there are multiple dates in the history of the business so far because you've gone and acquired a number of businesses along the way. You've got private equity investment. Those things are serious and grown up, James. Whereas you said the music industry doesn't necessarily, you know, obviously at the highest and the biggest levels it does, but you wouldn't necessarily put a creative person in that position. Where have you managed to pick up these different skills around understanding tech, understanding business, as well as still retaining your love of music? Well, that's a deep question you've thrown at me there. I think the business bit was the necessary evil, if I'm honest. You know, I mentioned earlier I was working in a music studio and it was a bit like this one, actually. There were no windows, and I was desperate to get into a studio with windows. And that's how I got offered the chance to go and work for Soundtracks, as it was then, which was a digital mixing console manufacturer based down in, in Epsom, so sort of Surrey area. And I thought that was a great opportunity to go in, meet lots of other studio owners, and hopefully find myself in a studio with a window so I could have some daylight, because it's a, it's a pretty hard day when you're, you're shut in a room, as we are today. So I thought that was my plan. That was my smart move. But then I walked into the building, and at the time, Soundtracks had a technical director called John Stadius, and he's got uh, grey hair everywhere. He looks just like Doc out of Back to the Future. And I walked into the room with him, and he was just full of passion for the technology and the, the components. And at that time, it was uh, with analog devices, they were making a, a Shark DSP chip. And he was explaining how powerful this chip could be and what, what it would allow us to do in the future. And I just got captivated by what he was talking about and his energy to develop. And then actually, when you make products that allow people to make better end results, it actually is, is just as exciting as actually being the person behind the faders making the, pro, you know, the project work. And that, that just got my creativity going. On the business side, 
we got to the point where we wanted to move soundtracks into doing live sound. Live sound was very much an analog platform because of reliability and because people were worried about shows stopping. And we we could see that shows were growing out of, of the capacity of the products that were available and digital technology would allow us to open that out and give people in the live forum much, much more flexibility to be more creative. So that's where we started Digico. And we basically got five or six net worth individuals, some from within the industry and some from out of the industry, to trust in us to allow us to do our first sort of management buyout of, of soundtracks and create the brand Digico. And that worked really well for four or five years. And then, as is often the case, some of those investors had different directions they wanted to go in, and we ultimately had to, to buy them out. And at that time, the only way we could see ourselves being able to do that was go into the world of private equity, which filled us with fear at the time, because as you say, not very corporate people. We were very fortunate. I managed to find a, a CFO, a guy called Clive Parrott, who joined us, who had lots of experience of private equity. And I think without him, we would have struggled. But he, he gave us such an insight into how we needed to operate and where we needed to professionalize and actually where we needed to push back. And we needed to say, no, no, this is, this is what we need to do. It's what's right for our customers. And that allowed us to grow the business successfully with private equity. And we grew Digico to being quite a large scale business in, in our sector. And we started to get approached by a lot of bigger corporate companies within our industry. And our industry doesn't generally have a, a good relationship with mergers. Generally, the talent leaves because the culture of the business changes and it's not fun anymore, or it's not creative anymore, and it puts restrictions around people because you know, not everything has to be the same. You don't have, a, have to have a cookie-cutter approach to things in life. So, so we were getting worried that that was going to happen to us. And really, in that situation, you have three options. You can ignore it and hope it doesn't happen. Ultimately, that's not normally the smartest decision. You can let it happen and hope it doesn't become what you fear. Or in our, our situation, we decided the best course of action was for us to become what we feared. And we decided at that point, let's start acquiring some businesses. Let's start buying things, but doing it in an audio-sensitive way, in an industry-sensitive way. And that's when we added Alan and Heath and Cowrick to Digico and created Audiotonics back in 2014, as you mentioned. And we ran that for, I think, probably two or three years. And then we realized, actually, we're quite good at this. We, we've managed to get synergies in the background, but keep the personalities of each of the brands. The customers still see when they go to Allen & Heath, it's Allen & Heath or Digico's Digico. It's not suddenly been overlaid with a big corporate. And we decided to add some more. And that's when we added Solid State Logic. And then we added Clang. And then because all of the companies in the group were actually doing better in the group than they were out of the group, we started to get approached by other companies that were keen to come on board and, and allow us to merge with them and buy them. And, and we're going to hold it there because I want to come to that moment. It's a, it's, a, okay. it's a pivotal moment in the story, but I don't want to rush you because we've got a, another little thing coming up here. James is going to be back in a couple of minutes, but right now we've got a quick clip from the Michigan Academy digital sessions. They can be found on all the major podcast platforms. Tech CEO Tom Grogan and COO Sean Rodway talk about the metaverse, what it is, why companies would wish to explore it, and the potential risks that we should be aware of. The Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. Conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today. The metaverse is a bit of a nebulous term. We think about it as a movement, very much a movement between 
the digital and the physical worlds. Today, those two things very much exist in silo. So to take an example, if you want to buy a t-shirt today, you either go in store or you shop online. All the metaverse is, is a way of blurring those two experiences. It's about making your online experience feel more physical using technology. And it's about making your in-store experience feel more immersive and experiential, again, using technology. So it's not just virtual worlds? It can be, but that's just one of the use cases. It's far, far broader. We very much think of the metaverse as a movement rather than a place. Your t-shirt example sounds a lot like what we've previously been calling ad tech, retail tech, and all of those sorts of buzzwords. So what's different here? Yeah, no, I totally agree. Metaverse isn't a technology. It's a broad umbrella term that covers lots of technologies and a very specific application. It almost always involves so-called reality technologies, so virtual reality, VR, augmented reality, AR, extended reality, XR, mixed reality, MR, but it is a broad umbrella term that has been and will be called many other things as well. The Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit mishcon.com. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. You can enjoy all our former business shapers on the Jazz Shapers podcast. And indeed, you can hear this very program again if you pop Jazz Shapers into your podcast platform of choice. My guest today, the man of the moment, is James Gordon behind the mic, as he said, in the in the dark room. Though, of course, it's in wherever you are in your head right now. You're listening to Jazz Shapers. He's the founder of Digico and the CEO of Audiotonics, creators of digital mixing consoles for live sound, theatre and broadcast and a lot more too. You were talking about the fact that, and I loved your phrase, become what we feared, which is essentially this, you know, and and you're right, people do fear, they fear private equity, people do fear conglomerations, people do fear that the freedom will be sucked out of it, the creativity will be sucked out of it. You talked about not being a cookie cutter. So obviously you were, I think you were about to say just before um, we went into the digital session that people started to approach you and people said, we want to be in. Right now, are you still in that place where people are saying, we like what you're doing? And if you are, which I imagine you are, what is the secret source that you've managed to, to um, create? Well, the good news is we are. So we should start with that, I guess. We are very much in that space. I think our industry is full of companies that, you know, it's a relatively young industry. And I think there are lots of companies in it where the founders are still passionately involved in their business. And they're emotionally connected to their staff, as we all are. And, and they want to look after them and they want their business to continue to succeed. And when they look at the things we've acquired and how we've gone about it, and we can, we can talk about that in a minute, but how we've gone about it in a sensitive way and helped promote the business as it is rather than trying to rebrand it or change the name or overlay another name over the top, I think that's allowed founders to feel comfortable that when a business gets acquired by us, we know what it is. We've, we know the industry. We are industry people. We're not, we're not bankers. And we care about it. And we want the business to do well. I mean, Solid State Logic is a, is a prime example. It was actually owned by Peter Gabriel. And he'd acquired it because he didn't want it to go bankrupt 15 years ago or so. And he pretty much interviewed us via his team for a nine-month period to make sure we were going to look after his, his baby. And that's what it is for people. It's a big, passionate thing. 
I'm pleased to say we've done very well. So he still he's send, he still sends me emails. Is there, <laughs> is there a bit of a translation job that you do in your role between the primacy of the music and the sound and the love and the way that technology is connected and those people, as you, you referred to the, the gentleman before, that you just saw him extraordinarily excited about the technology, as well as kind of this understanding how the business is going to work. Do you find yourself explaining things to people that may not see the whole picture the way you do? Yeah, I mean, every, every you know, we're, as we mentioned, we're in private equity, right? So for us, every three or four years tends to mean there's a transition as the company grows and we go out of one investment cycle into another one. And, and the big thing for me when we're looking at a new private equity partner is to, to find somebody that gets the culture of our businesses and all of them are subtly different. And I guess the secret sauce with Audiotonics is there's 12, 13 of us that actually work for Audiotonics and about 650 people that work for all the independent brands. And, and that's because we're just the glue in the middle. We're the ones that if someone in Solid State Logic is desperately trying to create some USB technology, we can put them in touch maybe with someone at Allen and Heath or Digico who've already gone on that journey and they have that technology. And that allows us to get more products to market faster, more efficiently, and not make the same mistakes multiple times. Now, the applications are very different, mm. but the technology in the background is actually very similar. So that, that efficiency, I think, is, is what us as the, the group people have to do. And, you know, we have one in marketing and one in technology, one in manufacturing, one in ops. And, and their roles are basically to make sure we leverage all the good bits, but keep every brand's own identity as well. So they have their own sales teams, their own marketing, their own support. And as far as a customer is concerned, they're dealing with the brand they want to deal with and with the people they want to deal with. And I think that's probably the bit. We don't, we don't go in with a spreadsheet and try and work out how we can save money. We go in and try and work out how we can grow the business. And that's a different philosophy. The creativity thing, James, as you're talking, it's pretty obvious that that's what drives you, the love of the music, the love of the outcomes, actually, the outputs, the sound, however it might come, whether it's through a small little widget, whether it's through a big piece of tech, or whether it's enormous speakers at the, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee or whatever it might have been, which I was at, by the way. and So was our kit. Yeah, yeah. so was your kit. So I, I enjoyed your kit. I, I, I was involved in some of the raising of the money from the business community. Ah. So I got incredible seats and the sound was perfection. So and I, when I was doing my research, I realized that you, you were the reason for that. This creativity now, though, what's it a product of, do you think? Why is James Gordon so creative? I don't know if you can put that down to one thing. I guess, you know, as having listened to your show before, I know a number of people that have come on here. Are, are dyslexic as well, and, and I am. I'm guilty as charged. And I think that means you have to, A, have a very good memory because it's harder to write stuff down, so I do have a very good memory. But it also teaches you to look at things differently, and you have to be able to communicate and release, you know, energy in a different way. And for me, that's always been creativity, whether it was, you know, uh, school plays when I was at school or whether it was um, doing music or creating something with technology. It's always been something of, of an outlet for me. Um, and, you know, I think it makes us look at life maybe slightly differently to, to other people. Is, so it think, stressful, is it stressful being dyslexic or was it before you knew that's what it was in the sense of you were being asked to do something you just couldn't do? Uh, I've got to, oh, I've got to, oh, you're going to make me do it. I'm going to have to praise my mum now, aren't I? Oh, I think no. this is the moment, James. No, and she's going to listen. Um, <laughs> yeah, es essentially when I was 10 or 11, the schools kept saying I was lazy and I wasn't trying hard. And she fought really hard because 
because clearly she didn't think I was lazy or, or, or whatever. Uh, and back then, dyslexia wasn't a common thing. Schools didn't really acknowledge it. They didn't know how to deal with it. Um, and she got me tested privately and, and then had great joy in going back to the school, by the way, and telling them that they got it completely wrong. Um, and I guess that, that helped me because it, it gave me an understanding of it. But it still meant that you struggled through everything academic. You know, I left school at 16 because it wasn't for me. And, and doing something creative definitely was. And the moment I got that, I actually realized what had held me back was actually pushing me forward now. So as you get older, I think it becomes something you can take advantage of. But just describe in a moment, a moment when James Gordon, who is dyslexic, has dyslexia, is able to see something differently in the room. Just give me one example of when you go... There are hundreds. Give me, give me, just just because <laughs> I'm, I'm intrigued. Well, it, well, it, it, can be, it can be a mathematical thing. So it can be that, you know, we'll be going through numbers at the end of the month, looking at, looking at a, an acquisition of a company or whatever, and they'll throw up spreadsheets and I'll just come straight up with the answer. And, you know, I've got very talented CFOs and, and people in the company, and they will sometimes just look around and go, how did you get there so quick? And it's how you problem solve, I think. You know, we can move into, you know, an R&D challenge where we're trying to make something work and, and it'll seem obvious to me on a, on a route that we should take. Uh, and, and generally, it's not always right, unfortunately, but generally it is. And is it visual for you? Do you just see yeah, it? Yeah, it is, yeah. It's just obvious. You just see it straight away. You go straight to the solution. And what do you see, literally? The answer. You you, I can't describe. But it's not written, the answer, is no. it? No. So what, what form it's, does the it's, answer it's take? Ju- I think, I mean, there's a lot of things on dyslexia about how you look at things and how your logic is slightly different. And I think it's just how you view a problem. Um, you know, I'm left-handed as well, so that probably doesn't help. So, I mean, that, that, it's those challenges of how you look at life. And I just think with it, it gives you a different way of looking at it. And that different way sometimes lets you get to the answer quicker. It doesn't always work. Sometimes, obviously, if you, you hand me a, uh, if you hand me a big email and it's a massive text, I'll spend the first 10 minutes breaking it up into small paragraphs because I just can't read a lot of block text. It just all blurs into one. But if you allow me to space it out, it's fine. So it's not, it's not, the, it's not great at everything, but when it comes to logical challenges and problems, I think it just helps me get to the answer quicker. So I view it as a positive, actually, now. I would say so. It's pretty much definitely a positive because uh, you're building an empire, an empire sure. of sound and many other things. Not that kind of empire. It's a good. It's a, it's a good empire where it's a friendly empire. It's a friendly empire where the good people can express themselves in the republics and they don't have someone in the middle telling them what to do. But I mean, as a hippie community, you can do whatever you like. Uh, stay with me for my final chat with James Gordon, CEO of the hippie community called Audio Tonics, and we've also got some classic Steely Dan that's coming up in a moment as well. Don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. My jazz shaper, business shaper, is James Gordon, CEO of Hippie Community called Audio Tonics. How that's going to go down with your private equity friends, I'm not sure, but anyway. You They'll know, deal we, with it. We, we, know, we, we know what you mean. <laughs> A couple of quick things before we have to, to love and leave you. Firstly, you talked at the beginning about the importance of STEM subjects and the importance of kind of the next generation of people that are going to go into the music industry. If you had a magic wand now, what would you do with government policy to push that along? Oh, that's really good for me. You've opened a big can. How long have we got? We got so, a, it's a quick one because I've got one other one after that. You're gonna have <laughs> so, to guess. You're gonna do that. The I've thirty second. The thirty second. Yeah. <laughs> so, so during COVID, I got very active with uh, an organisation called We Make Events, which was basically there 
to try and demonstrate to government the importance of our sector, which at the time is, you know, was one of the fastest growing ones. It is back to that now because its recovery speed is phenomenal. And I think the real challenge is, is we're a new industry. And if I could get government to listen to anything, I'd get them to try and standardize some SIC codes or something for companies in our industry to register at so that they could see, you know, how much the industry means to the country. You know, 80% of what we do is exported internationally. Um, our talent across the industry goes exported as well. Um, and we, we are one of the market leaders in, in the world as, a, as an industry. You know, the UK does it better than most. And we don't promote it enough as, as a sector. And we don't value it enough. And, and COVID demonstrated that because obviously all the lights went off for a little period. Mm. And now they're back on. I think government needs to realise that some of the new industries are actually more valuable than they think they are. Excellent. And that second part of that, which is actually this valuable industry you've got, what's it going to look like in 10 years? Are we all going to be avatars of ourselves? Are we all going to be in different rooms? I, I was looking at a 5G festival, which I think you guys were behind, and I'm like, okay, so you can be in seven different locations, the audience can be in 57 locations, and everyone will feel like they're in the room. Is that the future? Uh, 5G festival was actually very interesting. We, we ended up having a, a venue in, in the O2, a venue down in Brighton, and a studio in London with different elements of the band playing together. And we used some Clang technology to give an immersive monitor mix for the artists, so it felt like they were in the same room with each other. And what it actually allowed us to do was have musicians in different places collaborate and audiences to share an experience as well, which was really interesting. The audience, when one audience clapped because somebody walked out, the other instinctively joined in, and it became a, a more linked-up event. Um, and I think, I think that's interesting. That's going to be interesting for us with some of our audio creation products in the future. You know, will, will uh, people be able to rehearse more frequently because they can do it from home? But I think one thing COVID definitely did teach us, it's not just about listening to the music. It's about experiencing it with everybody else. And live gigs are valued more, I think, by most people than they were prior to COVID because they were taken away from us. And now we can go back we realize how important they are, and it's about sharing something. You know, sports events are the same. You know, you can watch you can watch a Premier League football match on TV and you'll see much more of it, but it's not the same experience as being in the stadium with the crowd. And I think people like to be with people. We value it. It's who we are. It's been great talking to you, James. Thank you so much. Here we are on Jazz FM talking about the power of music, and that's quite right. Thank you so much for your time. Just before I let you disappear, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? Oh, I've gone, gone with an interesting one, Chili Gonzalez. And the reason for that is we are lucky enough to be heavily involved in the Montreux Jazz Festival. And Montreux is great. You get lots of headliners that, that come and play by the lake, and it's an amazing experience. Um, so I'll do a good promotion for that. But one of, the, <laughs> one of the nice things about Montreux is they have lots of small venues as well. And a few years ago, I think 2017, I bumbled into a small venue with, with Chili playing, and he did this set where basically he deconstructed classical music and turned it into pop music. And then he took some pop music and turned it back into if it was um, a classical piece. And it was an amazing gig to be present at. And I would, never have, I would never have bought a ticket to go and see it. But the fact that I did captured me and I watched it and listened to it and enjoyed it. And I thought it was a, a prime song to finish with, actually. Chili Gonzalez there with Oregano, the song choice of my business shaper, James Gordon. He talked about the decision to become what we feared. In his own words, a hippie commune rather than a conglomerate. 
a lovely way of looking at a big group business. He talked about seeing things differently, the power of being dyslexic rather than the downsides of being dyslexic. And finally, he talked about the music industry itself, the power of experiencing something together with other people. Great stuff. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a lovely weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishkon.com forward slash jazz shapers.